0: I'm always optimistic until I have to change my mind. (laughs) Um, At the moment, I think, you know, the things that make me optimistic, Paul, is A, we, we need a breakthrough, and we desperately need a breakthrough, and this is not perfect, but it will do.
1: Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. Today, with a new voice, I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan. And today we're discussing the vexed question of energy and climate change policy in Australia. Energy has become one of the great barbecue stoppers of Australia. Electricity and gas prices are soaring, and don't we all know it? Energy supplies seem to be less reliable than they used to be. With South Australia famously suffering a statewide blackout a few years back, and if you really want to start an argument around the barbecue, tell everyone you're in favour of a coal power, coal fire powered station, or that you want nothing but renewables such as wind and solar. To make sense of some of these debates and policy questions, I'm joined by Grattan Institute's Energy Program Director, Tony Wood whose most recent report we called Down to the Wire, a sustainable electricity network for Australia. Tony, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Can I begin by asking you, Tony, to explain the latest acronym in the energy debate, which seems to be full of them, the NEG, the N-E-G. What exactly is this thing, the National Energy Guarantee, and where did it come from? I guess I'd almost turn it the other way around and where did it come from and then
0: you can get to what it is because it it arose from, I guess, the development over a long period of two difficult issues. One was climate change and while people will indent all sorts of other reasons for some of the challenges that have made energy the barbecue stopper you've described, the issue that's been driving this fundamentally is our failure to come to grips with how we address climate change and this goes back to the at least to the days of John Howard's prime ministership. And so this has been bubbling along without much success. We've had various attempts to have climate change policy with very nothing stuck. Uh, And so that's where we get to 2016-17 and the same thing still applies. Now, during the year of 2016, however, as what we were left with in the absence of climate policy, that is a renewable energy target, drove a very high proportion of wind power in South Australia. It was so high that it put financial pressure on the existing fossil generators and the last of the coal plants closed in the early part of 2016 and some of the gas plants had been mothballed because they couldn't make money in that market. The problem was that when you combine that with a combination of things including very nasty weather, weather outcomes and very high gas prices, we ended up with a really nasty problem in South Australia, very high prices and when we had the whole system hit by a violent storm in late September of 2016 the whole system went black and if you choose to believe it was caused by renewables you can prove that and if you choose to believe it wasn't caused by renewables you can also prove that because it was complicated. Mm-hmm. However, what came out of that what came out of that was an absolute commitment to address the issues of reliability and the security of the system, not surprisingly when a whole state goes black as they call it. And as a result of that the Uh, COAG Energy Council, that is the Council of Federal and uh, State Energy Ministers and Territories, um, decided to appoint Dr. Alan Finkel to produce a report on what should be done about this. And he delivered what's called the Finkel Review, or the Blueprint for the Future of the Energy System, very comprehensive, um, and recommended that certain things be done in relation to both security, but also he pointed out, as I've just said, that one of the fundamental problems was a failure to address climate change. So we still have to come back to that underlying problem which has been so problematic for our governments over many years.
1: But Tony, am I right that Finkel didn't recommend a national energy guarantee? That is post-Finkel. Correct. So what Alan recommended was a series of things to do
0: with the security of the system around things like what happens when you have big spinning turbines that have a degree of inertia and they maintain the voltage of the system. All those technical issues that are absolutely vitally important in a power system, but most of us would rather never know about. So he made a lot of recommendations in that area. He also made some recommendations that are related to intermittent renewable energy, namely wind and solar, and how they should operate in this market. And he also made a recommendation about how emissions might be brought down over time. And he developed a concept called the Clean Energy Target. Now, that was a sensible solution, but a bad problem for the federal government, because, not because the clean energy target itself was a bad design, but because the economic modelling that was done for that delivered an outcome which was more than 42% renewable energy by 2030, and the Commonwealth government and people within the Commonwealth government couldn't uh, accept that sort of high level, what they saw is an unacceptably high level of renewable energy and arguably too close to the Labor Party's policy. So it was rejected. Of the, all of the Finkel recommendations, of which there were 50, that was the only one that wasn't even rejected. It was basically not accepted, and the Commonwealth said they would make a decision on that by the end of 2017, and uh, Finkel produced his report in the middle of 2017, uh, as I said, after the uh, South Australian blackout. And in addition to that, the government by then, however, did go ahead and recommend the appointment of the Energy Security Board.
1: Just before you go on, can I just clarify, you're saying that the clean energy target, as recommended by the Finkel review, was basically sound policy, but fell because of internal coalition politics?
0: I think that's true. When you look at it, it's very similar in terms of a lot of other policies we've had to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There's probably tens and tens of different detailed mechanisms, which won't mean anything to most people, mean a lot to people within the uh, deep setted high religion of energy policy, particularly climate change. But this one had that unfortunate difficulty was that the economic model, and economic modeling is never right. This is just a forecast, right? And we all know how bad forecasts can be. But the, those people who were against any action on climate change basically said, we cannot accept this. And the Commonwealth Government at least blinked for a while. So in the meantime, they appoint this Energy Security Board to implement the Finkel review. The Energy Security Board, uh, which is comprised of some very experienced people already in the system and a couple of new people to oversee it, um, looked at this and said, well, maybe we can help. And from that Energy Security Board came a recommendation that we put together a mechanism which would address both, and this for the first time, and maybe possibly even globally, would address both the climate change problem, how do we reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, and the reliability issue of the of energy policy. That is integrating energy and climate policy for the first time.
1: You're suggesting that might be the first in the world.
0: Yeah, I've not seen it anywhere else, Paul. I think it's uh, um, many countries uh, grappling with the same issues, and most countries still have them in separate policy areas and separate uh, even ministerial responsibilities and interestingly it was the 2016 appointment with Josh Frydenberg as the Minister for Environment and Energy which may have helped trigger bringing these together in one minister's office, right? So that was a, I think a, uh, an, in hindsight a very sensible thing to do and turned out to be even more sensible over time.
1: Okay, so if, if you're saying that the NEG is potentially a, a world-leading proposition, just break it down for us, Tony. How does it deal with those two uh, issues of emissions and supply reliability?
0: Right. Well, what it does, it's called a guarantee. Now, firstly, you tend to, I would tend to ignore the word guarantee because it's not as though you're going to be able to take this guarantee <laughs> to the supplier and say it doesn't work anymore. Um, it's more like an assurance, in a sense, so, or an obligation. Different words could be used, but it'll do for the time. being. We'll call it a guarantee. <laughs> the idea was it's got, it's got two arms which complement each other in a somewhat clever way. The first arm is to say, we need to bring emissions down. One way to do that is to put the responsibility for reducing emissions on the people who supply the electricity to homes and businesses, the retailers, and to say, you need to bring the emissions Of the electricity that you deliver to your customers progressively over time, the emissions that are associated with producing that electricity have to come down. Between now and 2030, which is the sort of critical decade, if you like, the federal government's target is a 26% reduction in emissions by 2030, and we may have to come back to that in this conversation, because that itself is problematic, but that's the concept, right? So how do you design a system? Well, you put an obligation on the retailers, and they have to go and contract for a mix of energy um, that they buy from generators that would reduce emissions. So for example, um, they would have to move gradually away from coal and to some extent gas towards um, renewable energy over time. And that's the obligation. Right now, in many ways, that's similar to a lot of other um, uh, climate policies, but in specifically one way it's different, and that is it doesn't per se create a tradable certificate or permit. Because one of the touchstones of, that's created so much uh, debate in Australia is people who don't like the concept or have rejected the concept of having an emissions trading scheme or a certificate trading scheme or whatever. And so it cleverly gets around that by saying that the retailers simply have to contract to ensure that the electricity they're selling has a certain intensity. and it's, And gradually, of course, the intensity, that is the tons of CO2 per megawatt hour in the electricity they sell, will come down in line with the overall target. That's the idea. So you have that one sitting there. Now, alongside that, you then impose a second uh, obligation on the retailers. Remembering that one of the concerns is that every many people have raised, and it's probably it's almost certainly valid, that as you move towards more and more renewable energy in the form of wind and solar, now if it wasn't wind and solar, if it was some other Magical energy system that was not intermittent; that we wouldn't have this problem, but we do. It's a characteristic of wind and solar that they are intermittent. So, how do we deal with that? We have to have there are ways of dealing with it, but we have to deal with it. So, you put a second obligation on the retailers. That is, you say to the retailers: not only do you have to reduce your emissions of the electricity you sell, but you have to make sure that at all times you have the surety of the of the of the capacity in terms of the power generation system to be there at the times we need it, particularly at peak times, such as um, late summer in Australia, which is when we have peak demand. And that means that not only do you have to have the wind farms that produce the emissions down, but when the wind farms are producing their biggest output or the solar is producing its biggest output, you've got to then think about how do you back that up to make sure it really is deliverable all the time. And it's deliverable, particularly in peak times. And the way you do that, you say to the retailers, you have to contract, for what's called dispatchable capability or that reliability capacity. And so the idea then is that obviously if you, as you increase the level of intermittent supply to reduce your emissions, more wind and solar, at the same time that means you're gonna have to deal with more backup capacity which could come in two or three different forms. It could come in the the form of uh, storage. One form of storage is batteries. The other form of longer term storage is pumped hydro. Another form of backup is what's called fast start gas. That is gas-fired power stations, lower emissions than coal but higher emissions than renewables but they wouldn't run much of the time and they would be needed to come on quickly when the wind stops blowing or the sun isn't shining and they're the things you could do to provide that backup. But what you're doing is you're requiring the retailers to contract to have that capacity. And so you have in concept these two arms form what's called the National Energy Guarantee And um, that concept was quickly adopted by the Commonwealth Government as its preferred policy.
1: And so is there, just to be clear, is there an emissions reduction target under the National Energy Guarantee?
0: The the target itself is not part of the guarantee any more than the speed limit is is part of the design of the car. Mm -hmm. Basically, the target is saying how fast or how slowly will we drive the car. And so what we're saying is initially, we can drive the car pretty fast. That is, we can continue to produce a lot of emissions. But over time, we've got to come down and the speed limit's going to be gradually reduced. The car's still fine, but we have to drive it more slowly in built-up areas. Mm -hmm. And so what we see now, the way this will work, is that the Commonwealth, which has the responsibility uh, for climate change policy. Remember, this climate change is a global problem. Australia, under Tony Abbott, signed up to what's called the Paris Agreement. Our target came from that process. And we have at least bipartisan support to reduce emissions. Big debate about what the target would be, but take the target we have now. That will um, be built. Uh, that is in, built into federal legislation, Commonwealth legislation, and therefore applies to the entire continent of Australia. All states and territories um, will have to meet. Will we'll be um, that will apply to all of them. Now the, um, the Commonwealth um, uh, will then set that target, and will also not just set the target for 2030. But it will also determine the trajectory that is how quickly will we come from where we are in 2018 to meet that target in 2030 so they are the two things that the neg the guarantee will be required to meet Um, it also means of course that a future government would be able to then change it would then change that target if if necessary to reduce emissions more quickly and the guarantee itself would automatically adjust because it would mean that the retailers would have to meet A faster reduction in emissions. The actual mechanisms, the framework of the guarantee would not have to change at all.
1: So Australia is a signatory to Paris, Australia is committed to reducing emissions. Does it follow, Tony, that the NEG is anti-coal?
0: The NEG in that sense is truly technology neutral. Um, It does care about the change in the mix away from high emissions towards low emissions. And so there will be people who will argue that's not technology neutral. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a a very um, academic, um, uh, arcane sort of debate. The principle is having established we're going to reduce emissions, the system doesn't care how we do it. Now, that means that the NEG is neither anti-coal and pro-renewables nor anti-renewables or pro-coal, and it is um, not surprising but not probably unfortunate that a lot of the debate has now focused on that. So immediately some of the um, stronger, one could say more strident uh, environmental groups basically said this is all anti-renewables and pro-coal. Partly that was because because of the reliability mechanism, which which was obviously implying that you need to do something about all this wind and solar, which could be interpreted as being anti-wind and solar, but was actually anti-intermittency. So a lot of the green groups basically said this is anti-renewables, whereas some in the uh, in the more the more right conservative side of the of the uh, liberal coalition said no, this is anti-coal because it's not specifically providing incentive for coal. In fact, if anything, it's providing a disincentive for coal, and that's absolutely right in the context that coal will struggle in a world in which we have lower we want lower emissions, and that is something that. Minister Freidenberg has been very clear in his speech to the National Press Club. He's made it very clear to anybody. Look, people need to understand, I think he said, was that we are facing a world of lower emissions. And once you've accepted that, then the rest of it follows.
1: And in the middle of all this discussion and barbecue-stopping debate, we've had the Liddell power station in New South Wales. Now, what's going on there, Tony? Is it going to close Should we be worried that that will reduce reliability? Well, we've had
0: um, large centralised coal-fired power stations for a long time. Uh, Many of them were built in the 70s and 80s. Australia was at the right time um, building these things when people worked out how to do this very cheaply. And so large power stations using coal was a very cheap way of producing electricity for us. Um, From an economic perspective, fantastic. We had amongst the lowest energy in the world, electricity in the world. Now, those plants were built primarily by state governments, because at the time it was there were state government electricity authorities in all states. Mm. Um, they weren't connected much by transmission lines, so each state had to build its own, and there was a lot of overbuild. Um, a lot of large plants were built that were well in excess of what was absolutely necessary. And that's sometimes what, what engineers and state governments do. Um, when this is all put together in what's now called the national energy market it had all this oversupply. And so when you've got a market that's oversupplied, you get one outcome, it's low prices. So low prices were the feature of our market for a long time. As those plants have got older, and so some of these plants now are close to 50 years old, they're getting to the point where they are very expensive to maintain and keep running. Mm-hmm. Not only that, of course, they're also high in greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. But even on the issue of their technical capacity to keep running, they become very expensive. So we've seen some of them close. Now some of them closed, because of the financial pressure created by forcing in more renewable energy, and some of them closed simply because they were becoming expensive. And so the Hazelwood plant in Victoria, one of the largest and one of the cheapest, but also one of the most polluting of all plants in the world, um, closed in uh, in 2017. Now, when that closed, because of this overcapacity issue, there was hardly any impact on reliability as a result of that. There was a big impact on price. So consumers do care about reliability and they do care about price. And so we then saw some very nasty price spikes, which have become uh, a a big issue for consumers and therefore for politicians. Liddell, when you look at the age of plants and when they would logically be closed down because of their increasing unreliability, um, Liddell was the next one off the chopping block. Now Liddell is a coal-fired power station, one of the biggest, um, bigger than Hazelwood, based in uh, New South Wales, currently owned by AGL. Mm-hmm. AGL bought that from the New South Wales state government uh, together with another plant called Bayswater, which is much younger. Um, Liddell will be 50 years old in about 2022, which is when AGL said they would shut it down. Um, two things would happen with the Liddell shutting down. Firstly, Um, We are now getting to the point where that buffer of overcapacity is gradually being eroded more and more. And so at some point, taking away one of these large plants does have an impact on reliability. So the buffer we had for so long has gradually been eroded. Secondly, um, Liddell uh, is a coal-fired power station sitting in, in, in New South Wales. It's also been relatively low cost. Um, As I said, AGL bought it, the ACCC wasn't very happy about that. They Mm -hmm. thought that would be too much of a concentration of power. So AGL says, we're fundamentally moving to a different world, the Dell is now too expensive to maintain, we're going to shut it down, we're giving you plenty of notice, remembering they've given the market seven years' notice, whereas the owners of Hazelwood gave the market five months' notice, so they've certainly given the market plenty of time to say this is going to happen, and we have plans to progressively replace that. Now remember. AGL has neither the responsibility to replace Liddell, Ooh. nor do they have an obligation to replace Liddell. They don't, um, um, they don't have uh, any unique position. Anybody could build other capacity to replace Liddell. In fact, it might be better if someone else did. So Liddell sits there and AGL says they're gonna shut it down. Now, the market operator had a look at this, which is one of their, their jobs is to look forward and say, do we see the system reliability continuing to be acceptable? They said, look, if Liddell shuts in 2022 and nothing replaces it, then we will have a reliability problem. Now, it won't breach the what's called the reliability standard, <coughs> which is a pretty high standard, mm-hmm. um, but it might, under, under extreme circumstances, you could see a situation of potential blackouts. Not surprisingly, when uh, professional, experienced, recognised uh, engineers say that, mm. Politicians react. Hmm. And so there was a concern oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Liddell's going to shut down and we're going to uh, have a reliability problem. Um, almost certainly an overreaction, but an understandable one from governments who are always going to be concerned about reliability. And so that led to some of the debate we're having now.
1: Why would you describe it as an overreaction, Tony? Why are you, or firstly, let me go back a step, are you confident that the market? The system can cope with the closure of L- Liddell over the next three or four years.
0: I would accept the advice of AMO that, L- that the L- that Liddell shutting down and nothing else happening would be a problem. Now the history of the role of the market operator has always been to identify what they call opportunities. So they produce what's called an annual statement of opportunities and they provide a ten year forecast. If all these things happen the way they're currently planned to, what does the world look like? And sometimes they would identify opportunities for investment. The problem is that what is one person's opportunity is somebody else's problem. So is pointing out that, look, when Liddell shuts, there's an opportunity for somebody else to build generation in New South Wales. Um, By the way, if if nothing happens, there'll be a problem, Um, whereas the government sees a problem. Now, it's a bit like saying, you know, you're going home from work and your your partner rings up and says, "Look, we're going to run out of milk. Oh my goodness, it's a disaster." Well, okay, I'll buy some on the way home. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're looking at. We need someone to buy some more milk, mm-hmm. and the question has arisen to what happens about that. Now, there are people in the government who think that the only answer is to keep the coal fired power station named they Willadell open um, for another period of time. They've they've not been specific about that time. Um, They've argued that coal-fired power stations are important because they're baseload and we need to keep baseload in the system. And so you end up with a somewhat, more than a very polarised discussion about what should be done about Liddell, recognising that the National Energy Guarantee itself is a policy that if implemented properly would trigger trigger an obligation for Liddell to be replaced automatically. Mm So the policy has been designed and is currently being debated. The National Energy Guarantee is a policy that would cause Liddell to be replaced with the right mix of energy and leave the market to decide what that mix should be.
1: Okay, you've talked about a trajectory which is lower emissions around the world and for Australia. You've talked about a trajectory which is increased reliance on renewable energy, particularly wind and solar. But whenever you mention wind and solar, you use the word intermittent. So why should I and our listeners be confident that supply will be reliable in this new world that the NEG uh, foreshadows?
0: Well, the way you there's two ways you can generate this reliability. Um, you could just build it. So the government could say we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one could even argue that the government's plans for snowy hydro look a little bit like that. Um another way to do it is to say, look, we the reason we've decided in Australia and most of the Western world and not just the Western countries but also many others in, in Asia is we think having a well regulated market is the best way to deliver not only the energy we want, but at the lowest cost. Because ultimately we need both. And we want to do it at the same time as we have the third arm of the whole process reducing emissions. Mm-hmm. And so if we're um, looking at a market like this, historically, um, energy would have, if, if a power station had shut down, so supply was reduced, or alternatively, as it was up until about 2008, and eight nine, demand was growing, so we didn't have enough capacity, people would look at those long-term forecasts and say, well, if nothing happens, we've got a problem, we'll have a problem with reliability or a problem with price. But the market was designed to deliver that so the investors would see the price signal prices going up consumers getting nervous Mm -hmm. like anything else someone would see the opportunity build a new plant life would go on the difficulty here has been the break in that cycle has been the absence of clear climate policy which has provided so much uncertainty for investors that no one's been prepared to build the very things that would in fact provide the reliability Again, that's why the National Energy Guarantee is powerful because it says that we will do both. That we've now, if this policy goes through for the first time since the whole debate on climate change emerged, we'll have a policy that says, A, we are providing clear guidance for the market that we are going to be reducing emissions over time. We also recognise that those those targets will get tighter as we understand the science of climate, as the global political process works through. And, you know, and there's no doubt, even the Commonwealth Government have recognised that their current target will have to be tightened. So that's, that's going to happen. So we provide that degree of clarity, this is going to happen. So investors can have that certainty, but they also know, under the guarantee, that they have to, the retailers will contract. They will have an obligation to contract for, for that reliability. So when, the, when they contract for more wind and solar, to meet their ob- renewables and their emissions uh, obligation, they will also have to d- decide what they're going to do. They will have to decide how to make sure the system remains maintains its reliability.
1: How might they do that, Tony?
0: Right. Well, they have got. They will contract for. They can either and they themselves could build it, or they could contract for somebody else. So this doesn't have to be done in house, but it doesn't have to be done only externally either. The way they would do that is they would enter into contracts with, for example, someone like Snowy Hydro who would be there, ready to um, turn on their plan quickly if there was a problem with, um, uh, if there an extended problem with low wind or whatever. Now, for example, in South Australia, you see times... I mean, it's, there's 1600, 1,600 megawatts of wind power in South Australia. That's about the same size running full pelt as Hazelwood was. Mm-hmm. There are times when it can run just about that level, and it goes fantastically. Nothing else is needed, just about, in South Australia. But there are also times and we've seen this happen when the wind output drops to close to zero Mm. that's a very volatile system and so the way you can back that up back up say south australia in that example so the retailers under the neg in south australia would still have their obligation to make sure south australian consumers are supplied with electricity they would do this through there would be three things or four things that could be done one would be they would have storage and The famous uh, Elon Musk Tesla battery Mm -hmm. is one of those. They can contract with that and there'll be more of those, I am sure. But batteries don't last very long, at least under their current technology. They they, they run flat pretty fast. The second one would be to have pumped hydro storage, have the electricity stored and not just snowy hydro in New South Wales, but there are real projects being looked at in South Australia, which would do the same thing. The third is gas, because gas can respond quickly. Coal plants don't tend to do this very well, but gas can respond very quickly to an outage, I mean, we know, we know pretty well every day when the sun's gonna go down, so if we've got a lot of solar, we can back that up, and these days, wind is, most of the time, pretty well able to be forecast, mm-hmm. not, uh, not from day to day, but we know within hours what's gonna happen next, and we could start up gas plants. Or thirdly, in South Australia, we could import more electricity across the interconnection mm-hmm. with Victoria. So there, the flexibilities are there, and it's, the obligation is on the retailers to ensure that they've contracted Whatever combination of those things they want, the market doesn't care. It is indifferent to technology, which one ever you want, whichever you think's the best, but you have to do that. And, of course, the real teeth in this will be the significant penalties that are imposed upon those who fail to meet their obligation.
1: Uh, gas is increasingly, has been increasingly expensive in recent times. Is gas a realistic option among those, that uh, portfolio you just outlined?
0: Well, gas is it's a bit Jekyll and Hyde-ish in a sense, the way it behaves. Now gas has two very important characteristics and they have two different consequences for the way this works in the market. One is that gas is lower emissions than coal Mm -hmm. when it's burned. Now there are people who are concerned about the emissions that are produced on the extraction of the gas and all this fracking debate that goes on, but fundamentally a gas-fired power station produces lower emissions, even when you take into account those fugitive emissions. That means that many people saw it as one of the transition elements towards a low emissions future. But as you pointed out, uh, for a whole range of other reasons, gas prices in Australia got higher, and so gas is a pretty expensive way of doing that, Mm. even with a carbon price. However, gas also has this um, other characteristic of flexibility. So gas can be turned on quite quickly. Now, if you think about a situation in which um, we've got solar and wind and batteries, as uh, part of our system we can store a fair bit of energy so we can get through a lot of the day um, even a relatively low wind day without too much trouble but we might need gas to come on for some hours mm-hmm. gas can do that over the year that gas plant may not run all that much so for example agl are proposing to build another gas plant in south australia it would be running what's called the peaking plant that is only it only runs when it's necessary in that case because it's not running all that much that overall, even though the cost of the gas to produce that power when it runs is quite high, over the whole year, it doesn't have that much of an impact on the price. And so in that case, running as a peaking plant to balance the intermittency of wind and solar, the high price of the gas doesn't matter so much. The real issue is you've got to build the capital for the plant get a recovery on that. And so I think gas will have a role, and um, in many parts of the world, that the, um, the role, people see an increasing role for gas as we back out coal
1: and snowy hydro 2.0 the pr, seems to be the prime minister's sort of pet energy project of the moment is that explained by this reliability equation
0: uh i think the simple answer is yes paul because um when snowy hydro was built i mean it's a very in, in one sense it's very simple we just catch water mm-hmm. that comes from rain we put it in a dam and then we need, when we need to produce electricity, we run it out of the dam through a turbine and produce electricity. And hydro Tasmania largely similar. Now, in Australia, we don't tend to have too many more big mountains to dam in that sense. So we don't have too many more opportunities for large-scale hydro. It was also, of course, a post-war um, rebuilding project. And, it was, and in that case, was largely very successful. The other role, a bit like gas has two roles, well, hydro can have two roles. One is to say, look, when we've let the water run through the turbines and down to the bottom of the of the uh, bottom of the dam and through the river, you can just pump it back up again. Mm-hmm. So what you could do is, in, even if it's not raining, you can say what we'll do is we'll take advantage of times when we've got more wind and solar than we need, and that will happen increasingly as more wind and solar gets built, at certain times the wind and solar will be quite cheap. So what you do is you would take advantage of that when use cheap renewable energy to pump the water back up again. And then just let it down again when um, you need the electricity again. Now you do lose a bit of the electricity in the pumping process because you need electricity to pump the water but that's the fundamental idea and so the concept of Snowy Hydro 2.0 is not to build a bigger dam or to produce more water from the rain. The issue is to be able to pump that water back up again and then produce more electricity that way and this is a very large project. Um, the amount of instantaneous capacity would be 2,000 megawatts, which is as big as Liddell. In fact, bigger than Liddell currently is actually operating, mm-hmm. much bigger than um, Hazelwood. And it would be able to run even that if it ever had to run at maximum output, that is 2,000 megawatts, if it was full, it could run for about seven days at full output. That's a lot of electricity being stored in a dam. And that's the concept. It would be there. And that sort of seems, most people would say intuitively, that sounds like a more secure system than a battery now. Dams can run out, the rain doesn't come, all sorts of other things. It's not perfect. And so the big issue that's being looked at now is what is the economic feasibility of Snowy Hydro 2.0 is building a very large facility like that a good idea or would we be better off and or having a lot of smaller pumped hydro facilities around other parts of Australia. But that's the logic of Snowy Hydro 2.0. Later this year we'll see um, whether or not the board of Snowy Hydro uh, thinks it's a good idea to proceed with that project.
1: So you've explained very well the logic of the NEG, the guarantee. Let me ask you about the politics. Where is the National Energy Guarantee at at the moment and will it become a real thing? So the, the guarantee was um, proposed to the Commonwealth
0: Government uh, back in July, August last year. Um, the early success for the Prime Minister and the Energy Minister was to get the support of the Coalition Party. Remember this is a coalition that has struggled to support any emissions reduction policy at all. Ooh. So that was a significant breakthrough, and I think, you know, arguably the, the efforts of um, the Prime Minister and the Energy Minister should be re- recognised in that sense. However, the even though the national emissions policy or strategy or target is a responsibility for the Commonwealth, the energy system, the electricity system, the national energy market, is a joint responsibility. The joint responsibility of the Coag Energy Council ministers. Now, there's a fine point here, which is doesn't get it not surprisingly annoys people from Western Australia and Northern Territory that they're not part of the national energy market. But let's just put that aside for a second. Yes. The so we've got this um, situation now where to get the national energy guarantee fully approved and in place and, and, and legislated um, will require the support of all of the states and territories. That is South Australia, Tasmania, New South Wales, Queensland. And the ACT.
1: That's a political task.
0: Yeah this is sort of you know cat herding 301 (laughs) in a sense Um, and it's a big challenge right. Now the reason it's a challenge is a little messy because one could argue well why wouldn't if this is a good idea and does all the things we've been talking about why wouldn't the states simply sign up? Well we have this thing called uncooperative federalism in Australia (laughs) and uh, you know, the history is not good, um, and particularly when you've got, um, at various times, whether you've got people in, in government in the states and territories of a different political ilk to the Canberra, you can get tensions arising. In addition to that, you've got several governments who fundamentally believe, and they're probably right, that the Commonwealth emissions reduction target is not strong enough to meet climate change, to address climate change. It's, it's not as, we should do be, be doing more, is their argument, and they want to do more. So some of the states have introduced their own renewable energy targets, such as Queensland. Now, other states have targets, but Queensland and Victoria have moved to legislate their targets, which is quite different from having a a vague vision. Um, Turning it into a real activity is quite a different issue. And so let's just take Victoria. They've made it very clear, not surprisingly, that they don't want to see the National Energy Guarantee in any way prevent them from proceeding with their own renewable energy target. Now remember, we're now starting to talk about two things which are similar but not the same. One is more renewable energy, and the other is reducing emissions. They're not necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you could see some potential problem here. So for example, Victoria could argue that if they reduce their emissions through renewable energy targets much more than the Commonwealth's 26% target, but the Commonwealth still sits on its 26% target, that means New South Wales, for example, could get away with doing less. That's not fair, Victoria will say. Mm-hmm. We need more than that. So they're going to be demanding things like that. Now, I, don't, I think myself, that's, there's another side to that coin. You say, well, you know, Victoria um, has for a long time been the highest emitting state in the country in terms of emissions per capita. Right. Because we've defended on Victoria for brown coal for our power. So arguably, Victoria should be doing more. This is this is an Australian version of the international Ooh. negotiations around who should be doing what to address climate change, right? But you can see it playing out. So there's, that's where the tension is. And so the, the challenge at the moment is to provide two things, a lot more detail on exactly how these two obligations will work, how will the market actually deal with it, to make sure that um, if it does... Uh, have concerns about competition policy and all the other things that are related, they all been addressed. In addition to that, um, this question of how how it gets legislated and making sure so that the very minimum the states will be demanding, I am sure, is that a future government will, will, as I described before, be able to ratchet up the target. That is, simple example, the Commonwealth government, the net gets uh, introduced, initially the target 26% reduction by 2030, next election, election after, whatever, Labor gets elected, they can simply say, right, the target is now 40%, 45%, and everything can continue on. Now, you know, if you left that till 2029, that would be a big challenge, but, um, you know, people would expect, um, I'm not having, I don't forecast election outcomes, Mm. but the probability of a a, a change of um, government between now and 2030 would be, I think, highly likely.
1: And you're saying that the NEG, the guarantee, can survive changes of government in the states and more particularly at the Commonwealth level?
0: Yeah, the NEG, the neg itself is not dependent upon any of those things. Now, because it will be um, getting it through, will, if, it, if, if they can secure the support, it will, have the, it, will have, it will require the consensus support of all the states and territories and the Commonwealth. What that also means, to change the NEG would also require, in the future, the support of all the states and territories in the Commonwealth. And you know, in 2023, that could be a very different combination of political positioning. And who knows what might happen next? So it could be quite difficult to change. So what you want to do is make sure that the fundamentals we put in place now, that is the fundamental framework of the NEG, is something that everybody agrees does make sense and should have bipartisan support. And I think the good news here is that I think we're seeing, for example, the Commonwealth, at the Commonwealth level, federal labor is looking to support the guarantee. That is that they can see that they could do what we've been talking about, ratchet it up, but the fundamental framework is one that makes sense. And secondly, we're seeing industry. It may not be the best policy or the one they'd prefer, but they can see it's one they can work with, and over time, it will improve um, in terms of the way it works. So I think that combination of Broadly, the energy industry is saying we've had enough of it, and not just energy, even the big resource companies and, and, and um, cu- customers are saying we need much more certainty about energy policy in this country, provides an added momentum behind um, the, the neck.
1: Am I right, Tony, in reading into that, that as an energy expert and an energy commentator, you actually are something of an optimist? I'm always optimistic until I have to change my mind. <laughs> um,
0: at the moment, I think you know the things that make me optimistic. Paul is a we we need a breakthrough, and we desperately need a breakthrough. And um, this is not perfect, but it will do. I mean, Grattan has a history of being pragmatic, practical, and yes, we could wish for the perfect. But we saw this happen in two thousand and eight nine. When together, Kevin Rudd and the Greens, and probably helped by Tony Abbott at the time, absolutely buried what was our best chance of getting a stable climate change policy. Mm. We don't want to do that again. And so I think we now have the necessity, we have the urgency, and broadly speaking, uh, we have a policy that could do that. Now, there's many a slip between cup and lip, and who knows what could go wrong. But I think the you know generally, I think we're seeing even after the last Coag meeting, we're generally seeing a broad desire to make this work, recognizing that industry players, retailers large and small, generators large and small, and state and territory governments will have concerns that need to be resolved. Um, But I think the, the combination of that goodwill and the need to have this in place is very high. Because right now, there's no plan B.
1: Tony, thank you so much for your expertise and insights and optimism. And thank you to our listeners. If you'd like to download a copy of Tony's reports on the Australian Energy System, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, reports and events by following us on Twitter, at Grattaninst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed and found useful this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or a review. Thank you for listening.